Welcome to episode 125 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. And this episode is a fun one. We have our special guest, Rob McEwen. He's the chairman and chief owner of McEwen Mining. Now, this is not a typical Q&A interview style. It's more of a freewheeling conversation. And this is with our publisher, Anthony Vaccaro. This was recorded on the sidelines of the Cambridge House Silver and Gold Summit, which was held in San Francisco in late October. So this is on the sidelines of the show. So you hear some music in the background, uh, kind of lobby noises, but it just lends a bit to the atmosphere, I think. (laughs) But it's all quite uh, audible. As I say, this is a freewheeling conversation about macroeconomics, geopolitics, and the role of gold and all that, cryptocurrencies, his own um, political ambitions is kind of interesting. This was quite a long interview, so I've broken it up in half. So this is the first half. And a reminder that this podcast is brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's a group of 17 exploration and development companies up in the Yukon. And you can check out their website at yukonminingalliance.ca. And they have a very nice Twitter feed at at investyukon, all one word. Now, Rob is very well known in uh, North American mining circles, but I know this podcast is listened to all over the world. So let me just give you a bit of a background. He has you know, very impressive background. Apart from, obviously, now he is the chairman and chief owner of McEwen Mining. Uh, let me just read you some of the highlights from his bio here. He's the founder and former chairman and CEO of Goldcorp. And during the last 13 years of Rob being Goldcorp's CEO, the company's market cap grew from $50 million to over $8 billion, and its share price grew at a compound annual rate of 31%. Uh, Rob and his wife Cheryl have donated more than $50 million to encourage excellence and innovation in healthcare and education. These donations have led to the establishment of the McEwen Center for Regenerative Medicine at Toronto General Hospital, the McEwen School of Architecture at Laurentian University, and the McEwen Leadership Program at St. Andrews College. In addition, uh, he's donated to the Shuok School of Business, the Margaret Koshinor Memorial Hospital, Lakefield College, and the Red Lake Regional Heritage Center. He's also a member of the Dean's Advisory Board on the Schulich School of Business, the XPRIZE Foundation uh, down in the U.S., Vision Circle and Board of Trustees on the XPRIZE Foundation, Global Advisory Council, the International Society of Stem Cell Research. He's also involved with the Chief Executive Organization and the World President's Organization. Rob was awarded the Order of Canada in 2007 and the Queen Elizabeth's Diamond Jubilee Award in 2013. He holds honorary degrees from several universities, and he received the 2001 PDAC Developer of the Year Award, and he also was inducted a couple years ago into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. And he was our Mining Man of the Year, back when we called it Man of the Year, in 2003. Before we get into that, we have one of our sponsor spotlights. This is a promoted content here. This is related to our main sponsors from the Progressive Mind Forum. So this was our gold sponsor, PwC, and we are hearing from Dean Brownsteiner. He's the national mining leader of PwC Canada, and he's based in Toronto. And uh, he, I think he's their new national mining leader. If you recall, Liam Fitzgerald held that position, but he's moved up slightly. He's still at PwC as a tax partner, and he is their national mining and metals leader as opposed to the national mining leader. So let's hear the sponsor spotlight. We'll take a little musical interlude and then come back with the interview. Or I call it more of a conversation between Anthony Vaccaro, our publisher, and Rob McEwen. Thank you. 
I'm Dean Bronsteiner. I'm the Canadian mining leader for PricewaterhouseCoopers Canada. And so what I do is, well, it's a combination of a lot of things, but focus on the mining industry, uh, both on, on providing assurance, um, consulting services. Uh, the one thing I don't do is tax. We really focus on a couple of key areas. And so what we do first and foremost is help companies develop a digital strategy. Without knowing what your strategy is, it's very hard to bolt on technology and figure out what is it that you should be doing uh, from a commercialization perspective. Now, once you have the strategy, then you can look to things like how do you use the data that you're collecting to make your mine sites more efficient, more effective, and, and a lot more safer. So that's really kind of where we start. And it usually begins with something that we call a bit of a digital fitness assessment. So that goes in and looks at the organization to understand how digitally fit they are in terms of you know, what kind of technologies do they have, how comfortable are employees using technology. Once you determine that, then you can figure out, well, what's the next step? Implementing any technology is a significant change element for an organization, and so that's a big part of what we do as well as to let companies figure out or help them understand how the technology is going to change their culture uh, and how do they best implement ensuring that they get the, the most receptive embracing of the new technologies and then helping them develop the technology specifically as opposed to having a canned solution. It's really about them taking a journey to kind of solve their own problem and with us providing some input and guidance along the way. Internally, we try to solve some of our own problems and so it's developing new technologies, making our processes more efficient and effective. And so in fact, what we're doing is we're taking those learnings internally and looking to, towards our client base and saying, are you encountering the same kind of situations or problems? So it's not just to our benefit to solve our own problems, but we're going to use that information to be able to uh, provide clients with, with unique solutions that they may not have thought of. A lot of organizations are very similar in terms of the, the issues and, and difficulties that, that they may be encountering and so why not use some of our own learnings to help our clients to make better business decisions. So the first thing I thought would be great to start with is, you know, something that you do a really good job of conveying is this idea, well not an idea, a reality, of no salary, no options. What I'm interested in, the, you know, it's... Well, I do get a salary now, I get one dollar. You get the big dollar. Yeah, I don't know, I think you're spoiling yourself. <laughs> you gotta learn to live more lean, Rob. <laughs> but where, what was the genesis of that, is what I want to know, because this is well known in the industry, but what, was there a moment that kind of triggered this needs to be done, or how did that... Take me through how that came about. It started when I was at Gold Corp and I was the largest individual shareholder. Fidelity became our largest institutional shareholder, but I was the largest individual. And I just thought, well, I'd like to progress that because it seemed we were getting, as an industry, further and further away from our shareholders. There were more and more perks being put in place. And I just thought, shareholders are putting up all the capital. And 
there didn't seem to be the right amount of respect for it. And so I was almost going back to the very early days of a partnership or a corporation where sitting around the table were investors and they were looking forward to growing their investment. And when you look at the institutional investors, most of them don't want to be on a board because they want flexibility to be able to move in and out. But they want demands of accountability and commitment. So they're sort of at odds. I've been trying, I haven't been totally successful with my board and management and saying, look, stock up. Um, I am going to try something. I haven't given it to the board yet, but I thought I should just be going out to the market and saying, look, if you own 100,000 shares or more, um, you plan to hold them for a while, um, would you like to be on our board? And just throw it open. Hmm. That's because what you want is invested people. Well, they got now you know they have skin in the game. Skin in the game, and you say you know I mean someone has a big investment, there uh, they should have a say in the direction, and and I think the world's gone and say well there's a corporate social responsibility and community engagement and all that all that's important, but if you don't have the capital you can't build the mine and you can't then generate profits that you can share. And I think we've gone overboard in a lot of this filling in where governments and other countries should be providing services and the mining corporations are. Well, that's a big, that's a big issue. And, but we can, let's come back to that. But I want to stick on this a little bit more because you touched upon it. But when you come up with an idea like this about really aligning yourself with the shareholders, that seems to me from the outside that would create an interesting dynamic with your board, right? How do you, you touched upon it a little bit and getting the board to kind of take this up because now you are the chairman and you're showing it, but not everyone's going to be able to make that commitment. How do you negotiate that kind of, the dynamic with the board under those? Well, in some ways, I guess, I'll go back a little bit to the origin. When I bought into U.S. Gold, which was the sort of the foundation plate for McEwen Mining, it didn't have a lot of money. And I thought, well, I won't take anything out and I can put it into exploration or management salaries. And then I started financing and each time we did a financing, I participated. Um, and I just thought, well, still, we don't have a lot of money yet and I want to get it up and running. Mm -hmm. um, so going to the board, I said, all right, who's interested? And people bought some, but you find a number of directors, they're interested more in the options. Yeah. It's sort of like management. Yeah. And you're going, no, no, no. I mean, you're going to exercise the option. This should be a long haul commitment. And then other people say, well, but we're in a cyclical industry. I have to get out at some time. And there's been a school of thought within MBAs and things like that, that options were the way to incentivize people. That's being challenged. You obviously aren't on board with that. What's the, what's the problem with that, with incentivizing with options? I tried it at Gold Corp, and I gave everybody options right through the hourly in that. And I thought, well, they'll all have ownership. But it was really just treated as another form of income. And once it got, the options became vested, they were sold. That was it. Um, so you couldn't, and if it's a young, workforce, they're building a family, 
And here's an opportunity. There's, if the stock's gone up, to take some money off the table and do things with it for their family or their lifestyle. Um, you can't fault them, but then you lose that motivating leverage the second they sell. Yes. And then they went to restricted options and phantom options. And you're not putting up any money. The company's putting up money and just writing you a check, which I think is even worse. <laughs> uh, but, but it's not expensed. Yeah. Whereas options are expensive. Right. And that's why that sort of thing grew. That's right. Okay. So it's shuffling cards. Do you find it difficult now switching a little bit, but given this rigor that you have as a chairman and as a CEO, when you're looking to invest, you're not going to find many people that are willing to, to do what you're doing. So how do you, what's your threshold? What, do you have heuristics? Do you have rules of thumb where you say, okay, you know, for me to invest in this company, the chairman needs to own X percentage he needs to have not this many options how does that work it's not hard and fast and it doesn't have definite thresholds but I do look for commitment if I see someone who's you know selling really hard saying this is a great story and they don't have any money in it I usually get pretty cold right. on that story quickly um, I like to see some investment recently I uh, made an investment personally and with McEwen Mining in a company called Great Bear. Oh, I'm well aware. It's great. Yeah, I mean, just you investing helped that stock out quite a bit. But the, I said, well, I'll put in this much money. And they came back and said, well, the board's prepared to put up two-thirds of what I was putting up. And they were already invested. So oh, that's really interesting. that was a really positive sign. Um, Do you think that's a bit of a positive ripple effect? Like there's a sense, okay, Rob's coming in, therefore we need to really show that we're stepping up even more so. Perhaps. Excellent. Perhaps. Excellent. And I'd always thought, there was a question on M&A today, and I've always thought there'll be someone out there that's a large investor in their company and they're looking for long-term gains and they believe in the same values, that we're here, so why don't we combine the two companies? and build it, again, with vested interest around the table. Very good. Well, and you spoke a little bit today about the need to, to grow, to reach your goal of being the S&P 500. So do we're not reading too much into it, that when you're putting a few chips on the table, like for Great Bear, this is a way to kind of possibly look at possible targets? How does that work? Um, at Gold Corp, I maintain a portfolio of companies. Uh, one as a listening post for exploration and two i thought well maybe it's a farm team maybe at one point it might but most of those investments went up too much um, to take them in right and we had needs for capital so it rather than going to the market and issuing shares we were able to sell these shares and fund a lot of our development so it kind of works on both sides. So I look at it as a portfolio rather than leaving money on the right. treasury, like say um, Silver Standard, SSR. They have, if you have $500 million in cash, what are you doing with yeah. Is it getting one or 2%? Um, should they be holding back their gold as we did at Gold Corp? And like, it, yeah, it, it's, a big, it's a big thing, right? Are there words are, matching their actions? Yeah. Well, this is it. And at this particular time in the cycle, especially, like, is it when people say publicly, this is everything's on sale, this is the time to buy, 
but then people are retrenching and they're sitting on 500 million. Mm-hmm. What's the general investor supposed to think? Or not even the general investor, what are institutional investors supposed to think? Exactly. It's not consistent. Uh, and you look at the big guys and they've been divesting and they've been shrinking. So they have this negative production curve in terms of, they're, they're shrinking, not growing. And, and then in the last cycle, everybody wanted to be bigger because the institutions flowed in and, and all the companies were too small, or at least that was the, the conventional thinking. We're going to see more money flowing into this space than the last time. You think so? Why is that? Oh, just the amount of money that's been created oh, right. since the financial crisis. The QE. It's more than doubled. Yeah. It's so out there. I was recently, I saw some crazy examples of what all this money is doing in terms of inflation. There was a bottle, Romani Conti bottle, 1945, that sold for just under five hundred thousand dollars in 750 liters. Um, it's a recent sale. It's within the last month. Um, and I talked to a wine merchant I knew, and I said, "Did you sell that bottle?" He said, "No, no, but I got one of those." And <laughs> I feel pretty good right now. <laughs> yeah, are you selling it? So, so those are little leading indicators. There's, possible inflation that could be coming. Yes, there, there's a, a teardown in Hong Kong. It might not be a teardown, but they said it needs to be reworked. It's a house up on the peak, listed at $446 million. Um, I was at the Monaco Boat Show about three weeks ago. And I'm going around, and I was on a couple of boats that were 95, 100 meters long. And they're saying, well, this, this builder, this one particular boat, he, it's up for sale. Uh, it's 95 meters long. It's his third boat, and he's building a fourth right now, and he just wants to move this. $185 million. And there's a sea of them out there. There are all these... Is there a market for it? I mean, it's one thing to put the price tag on it. Well, apparently, there's the government inducements. They... They want to keep the shipyards going, so they provide cheap financing. I got talking to someone who arranged loans for these boats, and I haven't confirmed it, but he said, I said, most of the people out here must pay cash for these boats. He said, oh, no, they're all, most of them are financed. And I went, you're kidding. How? And I said, well, the rates are really cheap. You could get 80% financing on a new bill. 85%, 80% financing on $185 million. Oh, that's used, you know, but on a new build. And people are flipping. And, and so if you've made a decision to buy a boat or a plane or a house or whatever, you want it right away, right? Now, the build time on these boats is three, four years. So you're faced with the choice, all right, I'm going to build a boat and this is what it's going to look like and I'm going to wait. Or you buy one that's already floating. And that's what these that's people are just flipping. 2010, they were selling, they were very cheap, but now they're, people are jumping the line. But but those illustrations, that type of yeah, money. Yeah, is fascinating. I mean, a boat, one boat out there is worth more than most of the juniors. On an, you know? I'm gonna set it up this way. I want your, your opinion, and your, the wisdom of what you've seen over the years. Because for me, 
this is the great this is the greatest question right now. So we've had quantity we have so much money out there, right? So the, there's the Jimmy Diamond camp, right? The inflation is coming like we haven't seen because that money has to come somewhere. But then we have the other side. If you're a governor, if you're Pelos right now, God, what a terrible position to be in. So that inflation is coming, you're raising rates, you're killing a lot of middle class Canadians that have variable rate mortgages on their house. And so we have this bizarre kind of two tensions it feels going in the other way. That money's out there, the inflation's coming, but rising rates could just sink everything. Have you seen anything like this? Do you feel that tension? Where what's are you in the Jimmy Diamond camp? Are you in the camp that says that I'm in Jim Diamond? Yeah. I, I, I just the governments have been irresponsible. They've taken the most expedient route, and that was making money really cheap. And that's kicked off a boom. You look at real estate markets. I mean, houses are not affordable anymore for that group of people you're talking about. Anybody on a fixed salary is just going, how do I, how will I ever save enough money to get the down payment? But that's solved now because you can go out and borrow and get a variable rate mortgage. Rates are going to stay here forever. But if you look at the long term, the history of interest rates, five, six percent is the norm over an extended period of time. And you have spikes in between. You have low points as well. But it was in the the beginning of the 80s, Fed fund rates went to 18 percent. Kansas savings bonds in 1980, 81 were 22%. And the gold market was terrible. In the, well, we had that spike. That's when it got killed. And then it got killed. So there's a certain point. So explain this to me so I understand it better. So inflation, the threat of inflation, we're afraid of. We want to hold gold because gold is a store of value in inflationary times. But rates get to a certain point where they're so high, gold's not yielding, therefore I sell gold? Is that roughly You, you had the inflation at? of the 70s. And Volcker came along and basically killed speculators by raising interest rates right up. And and then the opportunity cost became too great to own gold. And gold rolled over from 850 down to 250 over an extended... So there was a positive correlation between interest rates rising that and the gold price coming off. Rising interest rates are a reflection of confidence in the currency or lack of. So higher the rates go, the less a person is willing to lend. They're saying, you have to pay me an awful lot more for me to give you my money. So we've had these periods when interest rates have come down, encourage people to spend. Uh, it's not unlike the housing bubble that happened in 08, the mortgage, where you went out and you lent in the US. People, you could get these jumbo mortgages, so you bought big homes. You could get, in some cases, 125% of your purchase price as a mortgage. And you're going, well, look, you can oh, buy a new car, you can furnish the house the way you want it. It's all good until rates start rising. And if you don't have it locked in, then you're going to start seeing your monthly mortgage payments going up. But there's a real estate boom. You can't drive on a street in Toronto. You probably can't drive on a street in Vancouver and even the small towns. There's something going on in construction. Yeah. Everybody's putting money. You look at how the cryptocurrencies have gone. Part of that, I think, is moving money without people being able to see you're moving money. But you're not sure if your money's safe. You roll it from a dollar into a crypto, and then someone takes your wallet. Yeah. Uh, 
and it's happened multiple times. How much are you? How much of it is it a secular trend? These cryptocurrencies. How much of it is a fad? Do you worry that that retail investment dollar, and even possibly in the future in institutional money, that that's just not available for the gold sector anymore, or is it just a fad that's it's nothing to be concerned about? No, I think crypto, in some form, is going to be around. There'll be consolidation and be a few survivors. Um, and that's just their their banks accepting cryptos. There some governments talking about cryptos. But I, the crypto and the pot stocks, and some of the tech stocks, are just the beneficiary of all this easy money. These trillions of dollars that have been pumped into the system. It's got to go somewhere. It's got to go somewhere. I mean, a half million dollar bottle of wine. <laughs> and and like something. just on that, the story is there were four or five guys in New York who bought it. They're land developers, and they plan to drink it soon. So it really was. It wasn't as an investment. It was a celebration where we made a lot of money. We're drinking some expensive wine. Yeah. <laughs> that, does, that does tell you something. It, it's just... It's so, symptomatic of something. It, it's phenomenal, some of these asset prices, contemporary art. Um, and you just look around. So I just think... Crypto seemed pretty sexy. It seemed like a way to move money out of a country that you may, you might not want someone to know you're moving your money. Um, it was not transparent, limited liquidity, um, and, and since it went on the Chicago exchange, Bitcoins come down. Mm -hmm. And I think once you shine more transparency on it, do that. The same thing with the marijuana stocks. Once we legalized it, they started dropping. It's sort of like sell on good news, yes. buy on bad. Marijuana stocks are going to be around. Liquor companies are going to look at them as alternatives. Well, someone that's made your name in the commodity markets and mining a rare commodity, does it all feel strange to you, The whole this idea that we would want to invest in a commodity, I, marijuana, that is not scarce, <laughs> that is easy to grow, that already on the black market was meeting demand, and now the legal market's going to come on top. It seems to me that the investment case, from a commodities investor's perspective, why do I want to own a company that's going to produce a commodity that's probably going to be declining in price? When someone's going to get the margins of the, the gangsters. Right. There you go. That, that's what it is. That's what people are trying to capture. No, I mean, they look... Drug dealers, they're rich. Yeah, they've done well. So, <laughs> high stress life, but a lot yes. of future comforts. Yes, yes. Uh, but I, I don't. Gold just is. It hasn't gotten any media attention. Maybe Glacier would like to run other stories. Yeah. In our, in my presentation, I talk about this invisible uh, bull market that started beginning of '16. I mean, if you compared us. I think I got something in here, and we're we're not alone. But if you just go, yeah, I love it. So, well, I saw your presentation at Beaver Creek. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, the S and P is up thirty-two, Dow Jones up forty-three, and we're up one hundred and two, and we're we're definitely not alone in terms of the gold stocks moving. And then you look at in the last three months, there have been stories. Great Bear, Westdome, West Haven, GT Gold, Wallbridge, Sokoman, 
they're they're 50 to 500 percent gains in the last three months this is telling me that money is starting to return to the market it's responding to drill results whereas three you know prior to this you put out a great drill result eh, it's a gold stock it's not going anywhere and so there I expect a rotation once this gets out of just the northern miner and into maybe housewives or home and garden or yes. any of these others people are going to go why am I getting sub 5% on my bank account um, I've made some good money over here is this the next rotation gold is late cycle so you think it's more the natural function of cyclical markets that will come, mm -hmm. as opposed to some external key driver that will come in? I mean, you've talked about the unhealthy levels of debt in America as being a potential driver. Not only America, the world. Look at our own government. Look at Ontario. Look at Ontario. Um, all of Europe employed the same device. Over in China, they just pump money out in really easy credit to tell the world, to show, to allow them to show the world that they're really dynamic economy I mean they do have a lot of cash still so but but to but this the point Europe, people have been able to live with that they look at that and they still don't devalue the American dollar so what, what has to change there well there are a couple of factors one Europe's economy has been slower to start coming back than the US so people were putting money over there um, there's geopolitical issues in Europe and so some people are seeking a safer haven or a safer location than what they have in Europe. They feel there's a, that, you know, that wave of migration yep. is destabilizing. Um, so they're saying, well, maybe I should move some of my money That's to another continent. Yeah, you feel it over there. We just we did a little family vacation in Italy. We just got back three days ago, and I couldn't believe the last time I was in Italy five years ago. The difference on the street in terms of the tension and what people are talking about and how upset they are with uh, immigration policy that they say is is out of control. Out of control. It's, it's tangible. You feel it when you're over there. I never thought of that in terms of where that med capital will flow. So that me that could factor into people coming back to the American dollar. Is that what you think is happening? Yes. It, it, and it's a currency with the biggest breadth and liquidity in the world. Is the has gold as a safe haven broken down? Is just the U.S. dollar the safe haven now? When things go bad, we even saw in the financial crisis. I don't. Right? I don't the U.S. dollar outperformed gold, did it not? In two thousand and eight, everyone just flipped to U.S. currency. They, they went, yeah, they, but they went straight into cash. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would. I don't think it's ever replace the safe haven it's just that people feel they don't need a safe haven hmm that's interesting so that psychology has changed it's just people have become much more cavalier about risk right. and saying the government's going to take care of it I mean we, we had the global financial crisis everything looked bad looked like all the banks were going to go the government came along issued lots of money and my life is the same yeah Unless you lost your house, yeah. but <laughs> in Canada, it felt pretty much the same. I'm sure there's people in America yes. and Arizona and Florida that felt the brunt of it. And in, in Canada, we don't look at it. We don't seem to understand that we're a commodity currency. The loonie is a commodity currency, whether it's driven by minerals or energy yeah. or trees. But my my biggest concern, and there was that what keeps you awake at night, is 
what's going to happen to the Canadian mining industry if suddenly metals pop and our dollar goes to par? You alluded to that just on the panel discussion. That's something that people aren't really thinking about. I mean, we've all said, well, we've got our costs down, but that's go back six years. We were trading even with the dollar. And you say, let me see, we dropped 30%. But the percentage increase is much greater than that. How much does gold have to go up to make up for that? Yes. And then you're just standing still. And an investor is going, hey, how come it hasn't moved? So as a CEO, does this get into your geographic diversification? That's where that, that, why that yeah. is key. Yeah. And is there other areas now that you're... You have an eye on, so right now we have Argentina, Mexico, Nevada, Canada. and Ontario. There are parts of Europe I wouldn't mind thinking about. Um, governments, that they're so <laughs> unpredictable. Well, they're predictable. They're going to charge you more. And there'll be, if we get into an inflationary boat, there'll be excess profits taxes. Right. You saw it, you're seeing it in Africa. Yeah putting outrageous demands on that. But it's an easy target. Who's ever making money? Well, it's like rent controls or taking and putting an extra tax on foreign buyers of real estate. Exactly. And I think we should be going the other way. Our politicians should be going, why can't we afford our houses? Our, our country is attractive for a number of reasons. Why aren't we trying to make Canadians richer rather than making rich foreigners pay more? Is it a scary time for you in that sense? It seems that the the political dynamic seems scarier than ever. Just leaving aside the hot button topic of Trump and the state, does this worry you? Is this a sign of a rising tide of just blaming people that create wealth and try to capture that wealth? Is that has it always been there? Is it worse now? What's what's your read on the the climate right now? The zeitgeist, as it were. Seventeen nineties, reign of terror in France. Really, you think it's we're coming towards that? I sometimes wonder too. It worries me. Well, we have you know very populous governments, yeah. and they're at either end of the political spectrum. And they're appealing to the masses. Someone saying, I mean, you look at Canada and we are a country increasingly populated by immigrants that in some cases didn't have a lot. I, I remember talking to, we have a housekeeper and who was our nanny. And I remember talking politics to her many years ago and she said, she came from the Philippines. I said, who are you voting for? Well, I'm voting for this. And I said, why are you voting? Well, they, they were in power when I came, <laughs> when I got my residency and citizenship. And I, and I dug a little deeper and I said, well, I'm concerned that if I don't vote that way, they'll send me home. Jeez, that was the thing. And that's pretty common amongst a lot of these people because they see this life is a whole lot better yeah. than where I came from and I don't want to jeopardize it. Yeah. They make it a positive association with the party that's in power. So. You look at it and if you have more and more people and the restrictions on how much money they can make way, way they, they can't work, they couldn't work 24-7, 12 hour shifts. We control that when we shouldn't be. We should just say if they, if they're really good at what they're doing, 
and they want to build and for their family. Well, how was our country built? That's what's how it was built. That's right. When my immigrant, my Italian immigrant family came over. They just worked nonstop, and they built up wealth, and they became wealthy people mm -hmm. by working their butts off. Right. Right. That seems to be gone now. But yes, we're, we're sorry. We're giving benefits to people that didn't apply to come in. Yeah. Um, have you ever thought about politics yourself? Okay. Running. I have. Um, but it's been, my wife is, keeps going like this. Um, <laughs> She's a wise woman. She doesn't want to open up that hornet's nest. And, and in my undergraduate, in my last year, I went out with my biz prof one day for lunch. And he said, you ever thought about student politics? And I said, no. Don't know anybody in that space. And he's, he asked that question. And then I went, um, I was, I was a, a ski instructor at the university and I was going to meet, it was a Friday, and I was meeting my fellow instructors at the pub after this lunch. And I went after, as I was walking to the ski club office, I dropped into the student council office because the elections were coming up. And I sat down and had a conversation with the president, then with the CFO, and then I left and I went to have a beer or two. <laughs> so On the record, you stopped at two. <laughs> on the record. Then an hour went by and some other friends joined us and they said, one of them said, uh, I hear you're running for president. Where'd that come from? Have a beer. <laughs> and then uh, an hour later, a couple of girls came in and they said the same thing. I thought about it and over the weekend said, oh, let's run. <laughs> and I didn't know this, this is great. So Monday, was the close of the nominations for student council president. Student council president then was paid $7,000 a year, and you could only take two courses. Okay. And had a budget of a couple million dollars. Sounds like a pretty good University of Western. Yeah. So uh, a couple of my buddies said, um, I said, I need 20 nominations. I said, well, I think it was Thames Hall Cafeteria or something at Western. And they said, you sit there, and we're going to go around to all the good-looking girls we can find. And when we point to you, you stand up and wave. We're going to get their names and telephone numbers, and we're going to get nominations for you. They were doing double duty at this yes. point? Yeah. And they thought, ah, oh, he's worth something now. I knew we were friends with him for a reason. So I ran, and there were eight people who ran, decided to run that year. I tied for second, and I thought, not okay. bad. For yeah. someone to just put it together last second, basically based on peer pressure, be good. And and so um, I thought, well, I should look at it. And I, I didn't, I went off. Uh, and then I went back, did my MBA a couple of years later, three years later. And they asked for a student council rep and sort of it was like a moth drawn to a light. Yeah. And I did. And partway through the year, the then president said, would you run for president next year? And so I ran, got elected. Um, I thought, hmm, maybe one day when I am financially independent and do not owe any allegiance to anybody, then you run for the country. Which is the exact thing that we need. What do you think, within the context of social media, within the context of no more privacy in a lot of ways, within the context of politicians being targeted relentlessly, 
How does that factor in? Do you think, do, are we at the risk in this modern time of deterring the truly best people from running from office because of what the stakes are now? Yeah, well, I, I think my wife's attitude typifies this. Uh, look, we have a really nice life. Yeah. Why do we want to get in a fishbowl? Why do we want to be on call all the time? I think Michael Bloomberg did it well. Yes, he did. He'd go to Bermuda on the weekend <laughs> or, or wherever. I mean, he didn't get paid, uh, I think it was a dollar or something. And he just looked at the issues and... He did a great job. And did a counts. great job. Yeah. Did a great job. <laughs> His empire kept growing while he was doing that. <laughs> That's nice. Um, so having someone there... And maybe we should be paying our politicians more. Singapore's got some of the highest paid politicians in the world. But you look how well Singapore's done. Don't... Um, you just say... We seem to give money away all over the place. We don't have a mission as a country. We don't have... Where are we going to be in the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? That's we... not even part of the dialogue right now. No, it? no, it's, it's scary. middle class. And the rich have always been a mean-spirited targeting of the people that have actually created wealth. And, and it's not... And I think you're, we're going to see a generation, the baby boom, is picking up. It's starting to leave. Yeah. Um, and they're not encouraging them to stay but the problem with baby boom is there's a lot of money in there but they're coming into the stage of their life where they want income not capital gains That's right. so you have that money coming out of the market and maybe the crypto and the cannabis movement are younger investors that see opportunity where the others thought, oh, well, that was illegal once, and that I don't understand. There's nothing, there's air behind it. Yeah. How can it be? Right. So the, the, there's a vacuum being created, and then there's this younger generation that's very attuned to the, the digital economy mm -hmm. and digital media, and that's having some sort of impact. And that does it for this episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us and supporting the podcast. And a big shout out to our podcast sponsor, the Yukon Mining Alliance. Check them out at yukonminingalliance.ca and on Twitter at, at investyukon, all one word. Now we'll come back fairly quickly with uh, part two of the interview with Rob McEwen. It gets very interesting where he starts talking about his activities in the charitable area and just about being an innovative thinker. He also talks about Peter Monk, his memories of him, and you know, both of them were developing these gold companies in Toronto, and a lot about regenerative medicine. And anyway, it's very interesting. So check in our next episode as well. So that's it for now. Bye-bye. <laughs>